Today's episode of Positive Regression is sponsored by Craft Beer Club. Craft Beer Club is the original craft beer of the month club, searching for the exceptional craft beers from around the country to deliver to your front door. Whether it's a gift for someone else or you want to treat yourself, each shipment includes 12 beers from among the best microbreweries in America, many of which have earned top awards. Our Microbrew News newsletter accompanies each shipment so you can learn more about the featured craft brewery and the brewmasters. Check out the brewery's tasting notes and test your beer geekiness with beer trivia questions. And you can customize your own ongoing beer club membership, whether it's annually, monthly, or quarterly. There is no membership fee. There is no obligation to continue. You may cancel your membership or gift at any time for any reason. Your satisfaction is important. Shipping is always free within the contiguous United States, and if you purchase using beer.posregpod.com, you will receive up to three bonus gifts with your order, and you will help support this very podcast. So take advantage of the offer. Place your order now at beer.posregpod.com. All about the left and right turns, all ending, of course, in our big roll preview. But first, as always, this is episode 82 of Positive Regression. This is the Mark Stahl edition. David, Mark Stahl, a Southern California driver, maybe before it was cool in NASCAR, he made just 30 Cup Series starts in the 80s and early 90s, a majority of them in the number 82 car. David, he never even had a top 15 in the Cup Series, but I feel like that's not why you chose him. Uh, oh, you might have done some Googling. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, uh, firstly, this is important because we need to establish that Mark Stahl was A, a racer, and B, a winning racer. He was a two-time overall champion of the Baja 1000. And if our listeners aren't familiar with the Baja 1000, it is an off-road race featuring trucks, cars, buggies, ATVs, motorcycles. Uh, those are the different classes. And it is just a fun, gnarly marathon taking place in the Mexican desert. It might be the wildest auto race in North America. And Stahl is a two-time overall winner. He did that in 1978 and 1980. He also won his individual class in 1981, 2007, 2015, and 2016. So some longevity there, Alan. Now, as you mentioned, he dabbled in stock car racing, primarily in the Arca series. This was, uh, more of a, more of a hobby than a profession for Mark Stahl. Uh, he made 50 starts in the Arca series. He made the 30 starts in the Cup series that you mentioned, but he could have been much more than that. Had he qualified, he failed to qualify for 32 Cup series races meaning he DNQ'd more often than he actually started. How about that? Now, if that isn't bad enough, one of those DNQs, Alan, and, and you probably know where I'm heading with this, came at Atlanta Motor Speedway in 1991. And this particular race that he did not qualify for was a big deal. He had... Uh, a longtime sponsor that paid a lot of money to be there and they needed to be in that race. So he brokered a deal with a driver who did make the race, but didn't 
have a sponsor on his car. The sponsor was Hooters. The driver was Alan Kulwicki. Wow. He never saw the Hooters sponsor again after that race. And, uh, and to what bring a... this on brand. Wow. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no, it gets better to bring this on brand for our podcast in the wildest possible way yet. Alan, I'm going to give you one guess because I think that's all you will need. How old was Mark <laughs> Stahl when he lost the Hooter sponsorship to a future NASCAR champion? Oh, age 39, the prime of his career, I'm going to bet. Perhaps the most bizarre age 39 season <laughs> we've come across since starting this podcast. And I've... I, I wonder if have any of our listeners like a heard of Mark Stahl and and b are a fan because I think we've just lost them. <laughs> they were ardent fans, uh, lost them after the bit about the Baja because they probably knew what was coming. But for everybody else, Mark Stahl is the subject of this weird little bit of NASCAR trivia. Uh, unfortunately, best known as an intermediary to NASCAR history. Interesting stuff. Well, that was, uh, that went further than I thought it was going to, David, because I didn't know all that. Uh, I do like how you described him as a racer. The whole Baja 1000 thing is just cool. And to have someone, the interdisciplines, if you will, coming over to NASCAR. Um, and, and, and like I said, California guy, maybe a precursor to Robbie Gordon or Jimmy Johnson or hell, even a Sheldon Creed. So maybe that, maybe that's what Mark Stahl was the inspiration for. Uh, yes, I think he'll, <laughs> he'll take that as his legacy over the other, other things. Um, but yeah, look, that, that, the Baja 1000, if you haven't familiarized yourself with that race, uh, go on YouTube and pull up some clips because it's wild, man. That, that is, that is a heck of a race. And this guy was a champion of it, uh, who came in a stock car racing, like you said, before it was cool, that cross discipline. Yeah, he, had more success off-road trucking than he did in stock cars, but uh, I would say that he made his presence felt in maybe the most absurd way possible in NASCAR. Well, I'm glad we're here to talk about it. Episode 82 of Positive Progression, the Mark Stahl edition. All right, let's get started, David. We're talking road courses, baby, because the 2021 NASCAR Cup Series schedule was released and six road courses are on it, David, including two new venues and one new layout. This deserves its own discussion. That's why we're dedicating this episode to it, because six road courses next year, that's one-sixth of the schedule. That's double the amount of road courses that we have now. And David, it just had me thinking of of our own kind of, my at least my own personal history of, of NASCAR racing fandom, right? You go back to, you know, I go back to about 92. So that's about 25 years we had two road courses per year on the schedule. Obviously, Sonoma and Watkins Glen. You know, two times a year that you really looked forward to, or it was just something different, right? Because it, you know, it was this way out world out in Sonoma, or it was, uh, you know, the cool kind of, uh, outside New York City area of Watkins Glen, right? It, it was just something different than these big oval tracks in the South. And it was something to look forward to for all these years. And they added the Roval, uh, maybe, you know, because fan, we started seeing these great races, especially at Watkins Glen. I, I fans started talking, people wanted something different, and then we got the Roval. And now, David, it has evolved to this. But before we get into the next year, just give me your personal history of fandom, if you will, of road courses and, and growing up and what you thought of them. I like that you described Sonoma as this way out world, as if you're some, you know, well, uh, shelter, sheltered child worrying about the hippies and their grapes and this well, weird race When track. you're from Connecticut, it really doesn't get literally any further away in America, right, than Sonoma or San Francisco. So for me, it was this way out world. I mean, the way, I mean, it was like, follow your dreams, young man, right? I mean, California is like this entity sort of thing when you're growing up, especially on the East Coast. So for me, it was this far out world. California is the, uh, is where you ought to be, Alan. Um, <laughs> I, you know, for me, I, I think it, it was a little bit of the novelty, but you're right in that it was so few times a year that I did look forward to it. And if I recall those early telecasts of road course racing, that, that was when they would highlight 
uh, Ricky Rudd. I mean, he would be maybe a driver they were following. Rusty Wallace was probably one of them too. But do you remember the like the foot cam that was that they were sure, they were exactly. working the yep. yeah the two footed Ricky Rudd goofy um, pedal braking cadence. That's what that was my takeaway is that oh this this is the weekend for this kind of racing uh where we would see names that we weren't really familiar with because that was the time when the West Series was also competing uh, in the cup race and names that weren't always in contention for outright race wins. I think during that time, this the, these might've been the kinds of uh, weekends where Dale Earnhardt wasn't a factor. He, he won often uh, the way that some fans felt about Jimmy Johnson winning all the time or Kyle Busch winning all the time. That same sentiment was felt with Dale Earnhardt and these weekends were something of a, of a reprieve from that. But I think for me, Alan, I'm, um, I do want to hear what you think, but in looking at, at these changes and this schedule for 2021, uh, personally, I neither like it nor dislike it. And I'm sure you're not surprised by that response, <laughs> but I, it, I mean, it, it's true. I don't have emotional attachment to any of the races or tracks that were moved uh, for the sake of these, these road course venues, the closest may have been Kentucky, but they paved that track and it's not as compelling as it once was. And, uh, we've discussed it here. Indianapolis for me, the Brickyard 400 is something that I was always told was a major, but I never felt that way. All I saw were races built around strategy, which in turn was built around a Goodyear tire that, uh, was never at any point trustworthy. And this year's Brickyard 400 was uh, an awesome strategic battle between Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick, but there were also these hard hits that were unnecessary and and they were not due to driver failings. Uh, they were due to the failure of the tire. So NASCAR stepping in to, to save Goodyear is, is kind of like a fight stoppage in, in UFC. It's already over and it was only going to get worse. But having said that, I the Indianapolis's direct successor, whether it will be a better race, will it allow for the most talent and strategic creativity? I, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll have to watch. I'm a captive audience. I know that. I'm going to watch regardless. Uh, so I'm pretty even keeled about it all. Um, it, it will make for something interesting and new. There's more of an incentive for me to focus on different road course peripheral stats. Uh, so I'll do that next year, but that's just replacing other work that I was going to do. So from where I sit, it's nothing lost, uh, nothing gained yet. Is yes. that fair? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Especially, I mean, thinking toward the future, as you say, nothing changed yet. I mean, just emotionally, I, I will miss the Brickyard. Uh, that, that to me was one of the most significant events in my life growing up and seeing the, the cup cars go to Indy and, and the heartbreak of Rusty never winning it and finishing second, I believe, three times and just twisting that knife some more. Uh, but I'll move on. But no, I like, I like the idea of new venues. I like, I mean, the fact they're going the Circuit of the Americas, right? I mean, that's an F1 world-class venue. The fact that NASCAR is going there, um, maybe not that NASCAR needs it. Maybe I'm being a little oversensitive, but it just puts NASCAR on that world stage again, right? On that, on the same plane as the, 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 some of the best and most looked at cars in the world, right? Is the same as the F1 car. So the fact that they're sharing that same real estate, I think is awesome. Uh, I don't know much about Road America. Obviously the, the Xfinity series goes there. Uh, so to have another venue there for the cup cars, I think that's cool. I, I like new. Uh, so I think those are all positives, but just from, uh, if we dig in deeper, David, um, like we said, one sixth of the the schedule now is going to be at road courses. That that seems like a huge deal that could potentially change the sport and in a few ways. And the first thing I thought of were, were driver development, right? Because if one sixth of the schedule is dedicated to road course tracks, that that may play into the decisions teams make when choosing a driver. My immediately thought of. As of this taping, they are still waiting to name the driver of the 21 Wood Brothers car next year uh, the, the, with the Penske affiliation. Obviously, we're talking Matt Benedetto, Austin Sindrick maybe waiting there in the wings. Like, what's going to happen? Again, as of this taping, we don't know the answer yet. Matt Benedetto went on Sirius Radio on Tuesday and said, hopefully by the end of the week, there will be an answer. 
David, a lot goes into driver selection, but knowing how good someone like Austin Sindrick is on road courses, when you all of a sudden see a 2021 schedule with six races on it, don't you think that could be a tipping point to maybe going toward a young driver like Austin Sindrick with the skills that he has? Uh, That has to be a huge factor now. Yeah, and this is where we're going to see the immediate effect Austin Cedric has considerable value to the 2021 Cup Series season. And uh, for that matter, so does Chase Briscoe. And, I, and I'll kind of dive into to both of those guys. We said it before on this podcast. I think it was a listener question on a previous episode. I would argue AJ Allmendinger at age 39. I wrote him next down. We'll season, talk, let's talk about it. <laughs> has he ever been more valuable to a Cup Series team than he is right now. He probably won't get a cup ride. I'm not trying to launch a, a thousand Reddit posts here, but he's never been more relevant to the cup series season than he will be in 2021. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. Matt DiBenedetto, uh, still awaiting his fate. Clint Boyer as well. It is entirely possible that we see a run on road course talent. I'm, I just, I'm not sure how that shakes out. Yeah, and and you mentioned Briscoe, we mentioned Sindrick. Let, let's dive into Dinger a little bit because I have him here on my list that I wanted to bring up at some point, but you did, so let's do it. I mean, as you said, we talked about him. The, the year he's having in Xfinity, kind of cherry-picking his races, but doing great stuff with uh, with the races that he picks, right, and having good results, and in the uh, statistical prime potential of his uh, of his production – David, if you're just thinking bottom line, right, if you are a bottom line team, making the playoffs means a whole lot of money, means a whole lot of attention. It used to be A.J. Allmendinger had two shots a year, right, two real good shots. I mean, if we're being honest, that that's the story we would tell, you know, all of us in the media. And, uh, you know, I'll take the blame on Race Hub as well. You know, I would do the story every time. They'd go to Sonoma. They'd go to Watkins Glen. We'd do the story with A.J. Hey, you know, this is the real shot to make the playoffs. That one time he did. And it was awesome. It was a great victory lane. I'll never forget Brad Doherty hugging, uh, you know, little A.J. Allmendinger. And it, what a great sight that was. But that was the benefit of having a talent like A.J. Allmendinger on your team is that if you get that win, you get in the playoffs. Well, David, they've now doubled the opportunities for a driver like A.J. Allmendinger to make the playoffs. So if you're talking bottom line, sure, you don't want to finish 21st or 26th every week on an oval. But if you just win one of those five races, you're a playoff team. And that means money. That means attention. I can't imagine how valuable A.J. Allmendinger would be to either A, a new team or someone like a front row motorsports or or just getting him in a full-time ride and giving him five shots a year to make the playoffs. I like those odds, and I can't believe someone may not take advantage of that. What if he wins three of the five? Exactly. What if he wins wins five of the five, and then he has – I mean, you're through – to the round of 12. I mean, that, that should be enough of a cushion. So, and it just takes one. That's what I'm saying. Like, it just takes one of the five. AJ can do that. So we are very close to the, the worm turning on how driver selection is altered. I, I seriously think that there's only going to be a small window for this though, because now, this is going to serve maybe not as a reset. I don't want to use that word, but a a more deliberate focus on road course racing among the the young driver set that's currently in these manufacturer development programs. So development has already been heading in a cross training direction. I don't think we're going to see anyone cross-train to the degree of Austin Cendrick, uh, because global rally isn't as accessible to young Americans as it was a few years ago. But road racing in general has become a staple of Ford's development program. Uh, Chase Briscoe was put through the ringer. He has about a dozen starts in low level sports car racing. And I saw some, some writers this week, uh, refer to him as a road course pro. I'm sure he probably would smile about that. I'm not sure that that definition completely fits, but that also speaks to how good he has transformed himself. 
uh, as a road racer and Ford is taking the same exercise uh, with Haley Deegan. She was in a sports car in Daytona earlier this year. Uh, this is a, a planned exercise uh, similarly with Toyota. Uh, a few years ago, they did this with Chris Bell and Brandon Jones. They ran them in Trans Am. Bell made a road course start in the NASCAR Pinties series in Canada back in 2017. And uh, you, you, when you spoke about the uh, the Daytona road course earlier this year, I believe it was Christian Eckes. You said was starting on the front row, had never been on a road course. Yes. Yep. So that so that is almost going to be, and 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 and, and maybe there were plans um, that the the pandemic thwarted, but that little comment is going to become inexcusable in future seasons. Uh, manufacturers or teams cannot allow young drivers to advance without having more substantial, deliberate road course experience. And I'm not just talking, you know, running the simulator. They're going to need to compete in some of these Trans Am and IMSA races uh, just to to get their chops up. So that that is going to change. But there, but in the meantime, there, you're right. There is going to be this small window in which a driver like an A.J. Allmendinger or um, we can go way in the weeds because I, I was on a, a conference call uh, speaking to Corvette driver Jordan Taylor, who's had a lot of success in, in IMSA, and he has a direct connection uh, working with Chevrolet so closely. He has been trying for, he said, five to six years to try to break in to NASCAR with any team. And he was relying on Jeff Gordon for advice. And Jeff Gordon was recommending that he not get in a backmarker car. He needed to find a team uh, that had a car commensurate with his road racing ability. Now, because of, of, of how uh, sturdy this road course schedule is, this might be a real opportunity for that. He's not going to get in a Gibbs car or, or you know, a top-tier Chevrolet team, but there might be a relevant middle-tier team that could break away from, how about this, just a single driver. Why not, why not have multiple drivers across a season? And if you know that you can't compete for a driver's title, there's still an owner's championship. That's always a, 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 a strange outside possibility. But, Alan, I like the creativity that this could foster when it comes to team building because we've really never seen NASCAR in a situation like this. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see how this changes. We can talk about team building itself uh, a little bit later, but just on the driver side, what changes actually occur? Yeah. And, and that's where I was going to take it right after that. We, we've only talked about drivers so far and driver selection. Well, what about the cars you're building? What about the resources and research that you do? Uh, I threw this question around to some of the, the garage uh, folks that, that listen to this podcast and just wanted to get their thoughts on it. Remember next year, there are even more limits on wind tunnel time. And now CFD, computational fluid dynamics. It, look it up. It's a, it's a really big deal. It's a, you know, computers, air going through the engine, all this stuff. It's a really big deal. And that research has been cut significantly for teams starting next year. So there are limited time and resources that you are now allowed to dedicate toward let's just say making speed, right? Or making downforce, enhancing your performance. David, if six races are on road courses, you would think some of that or decisions are going to be made, questions are going to be asked, and how much of our resources should we start turning toward these road courses? Because again, for some teams, one win gets you in. Why not put a majority, 75% of your resources toward to trying to get one of the wins in in the five regular season races, right? I, these are questions that teams are going to start asking themselves, especially if they start thinking about their driver selection. And again, if you just win one of these races, you're in the playoffs, which means a whole bunch of money and a lot of exposure. That's the idea here, right? The bottom line. You said that these are questions that teams will be asking themselves. I, I would like to insert one word in there. These are questions that smart teams will be asking <laughs> themselves uh, and then potentially teams with with resources. Because the the way I see it, 
based on what we're hearing, the, the rumor is that there will be 28 weekends next year in which there is no practice, no qualifying, and that's less road crew. And that's potentially a cause for consolidation among teams. Um, and, and, and I'd hate to see folks lose their jobs over rules changes. That's, that's not fair. But what, what can happen is a refocusing of the personnel at hand for years. Joe Gibbs Racing had one guy, and I know this because I met him, but he they had one guy focused solely on road course development. Uh and, and he's a smart guy engineer, but are are all teams doing this to that level? Can all teams do this to that level? So that's why I would say that the smart teams, the teams with resources are probably it's not new resources it's just a reallocation of what they already have a reallocation of the personnel that they already have uh on their books focus on these these races because this is important if you had any kind of focus on a 2 mile track and and I've joked for years that it's kind of pointless to have that focus because 2 mile tracks were never represented in the playoffs mm. There, that was a very small ceiling to doing that, but still big, smart teams earmarked money for two mile track development. Well, here is something that makes more sense. Have a reimagined personnel structure where part of it is focused on road course development. And, and frankly, we're going to get into it when we talk about who's a favorite on, on the, the Roval this weekend. There is a pretty big gap between the best organizations and maybe the second best or second or third best organizations on road courses this season. And it, and it shows the, the results show that. So how that changes, how teams take this seriously and how creative they are in restructuring their personnel to appease this new demand will be very interesting. You're, you're, you're right. There's going to be heavy limitations on what these team members are able to do in 2021, but that doesn't mean that you can just throw them to the wayside. There are still advantages to be gained. And right now, this is, I don't know, fresh powder is, I guess we would call it. Huh, like it, we're, like we're sort of, yeah. we're sort of entering some, some uncharted, uh, uh territory. With this much of a road course schedule, what team is going to either reassert their dominance that they already have or hit the ground running and seemingly come out of nowhere based on their results in years past? Yeah, I just, yeah, when you, when you move the number from what five in the regular season to two, you know, from two to five, two races in the regular season to five, I mean, that, you can't ignore that. You can't punt on that. And not, if some teams were deciding again, resource allocation to, to not put so much as much effort, if you will, into the two road course races in the regular season now, uh, when you have five, I, I think you, you can't ignore that anymore. I think that's a good point you bring up and that will factor in. Another thing you just wonder, and I don't know enough about this yet, but I just wonder the trickle down. Obviously in road racing, you know, Chevy has a program with, with the Corvettes and IMSA, you know, stuff like that, Toyota and Lexus and, and Ford, as we already talked about their development program. How much of that trickles in over to the NASCAR side now or those relationships or does any of that matter at all? You know what I mean? The data, I wonder how those relationships are going to be, uh, strengthened and or fostered now. Yeah. I mean, corporate synergy is, yeah. is, is easy to envision. Uh, Chase Elliott and Jordan Taylor talked about that on that conference call, uh, that I, that I spoke of that, the Corvette team helped Hendrick Motorsports understand the Daytona road course. It makes sense because the Corvettes race in the, the Rolex 24 and they, they've seen that racetrack a lot. The flip side to that is that IMSA is racing on the Roval this weekend. Chase Elliott and the Hendrick guys helped the Corvette team Interesting. Uh, with, with their, uh, their simulation testing and trying to understand what the, the Roval was like. So that is, that's almost too easy because it's right there. Uh, you, you, you said it right with Toyota and, and Lexus. Ford has been doing this. Um, maybe, maybe not at the highest level. We haven't seen Chase Briscoe in a Rolex 24 yet, but it's, it's right there. It's easy to assemble. 
And yeah, it's going to be quite a sight to see maybe more Cup Series drivers head over to these sports car races just to hone their skill in order to merely survive in the cup series because as 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 I'm going to be quick to note it's there there are two guys really dominating the NASCAR cup series right now on road courses and there is room for more i mean there is there is a lot that can be gained. Yeah, let, let's talk about them because most of my attention anyway, I, you know, I've just been thinking of these smaller teams that that can take advantage of now five races and you again, you just win one, you're in the playoffs. But let, let's talk about the big bigger teams and championship picture because five races and then one in the playoff, that's a big deal. You know, some drivers are better at this than others, as we're saying. So who does this benefit for 2021? I would have to assume it's a guy like Chase Elliott. Is that who you're thinking, David? Or Martin Truex Jr., right? The, the, probably the two best road racers right Right now, you give them more opportunities. That that's got to be a benefit. Literally, the only two names that I had written down. I I mentioned these two guys specifically because their organizations, Hendrick Motorsports and Joe Gibbs Racing, respectively, they have been the leaders, shall we say, in road course development. And I am basing that observation simply on results. To me, I think they are best positioned to reassert their own dominance because they have been so focused. Again, we speak to that second tier. There really isn't a second tier of good road course drivers, or or at the very least, I should say, there's not a consistent second tier. So I asked you to think of drivers who could negatively be affected and and that's assuming that no changes were made but i see tracks removed from the schedule where kevin harvick would have done really well uh perhaps team penske too alan i was looking at joey logano's record in recent road course races that's a lot of alliteration now that i say that <laughs> not great and penske as a whole generally a non-factor in road course races. And that's a both of those, Harvick and, and the Penske Troop, it's a bit puzzling because we know how deep those organizations are. You know, for one, Penske as a whole is going to, to miss out on a lot by not having some of these ovals. Uh, we've talked about restarts being their strength. Not that they're not going to be good at restarts, but now their strength is going to matter less in 2021. So I look at SHR and I look at Penske and I see organizations that haven't in the recent past had a lot of success at these tracks. Are they going to say, okay, what we were doing well or exceedingly well in Kevin Harvick's case it's going to matter less. There's less of an upside. So how are they going to pivot from what they were doing well and reallocate to focus on things that maybe they previously didn't care about? Uh, I, I mean, as, especially the, the Stuart Haas teams with Harvick because that Daytona race was a disaster. So that's <laughs> why I had that on my mind. But the Penske cars too – we know how deep those guys are and they have an IndyCar program and they've, they're, they're in bed with multiple manufacturers. Like how, how have they not made this work better? I'm, I'm anxious to see how, how that pivot occurs because now they have to take this with the utmost seriousness. Yeah. You, you took that question and totally reversed it in terms of who, who, who does this hurt by what they've taken away? And I love what you did there because I did not think of it that way, David. I just thought of who does this negatively affect? I just thought anyone not good on road courses, right? I mean, I looked at Eric Almarola, uh, two career top tens in road courses. Uh, how does that translate? You know, when you double the number of road courses we're going to now, I mean, those are just more opportunities to, I guess, either practice and do well or do better or not do well. You know what I mean? So, but I like how you, you kind of flipped it and, and looked at what we're taking away. Like when you take away a Michigan race, uh, you know, who, who loses by, by that not happening. So that was a good take on that, David. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and I mean, that's one where 
Uh, Eric Almarola this season has been tremendous in clean air on big racetracks. And now he is going to tracks where you're right. His road course acumen, nothing to write home about, but he's at risk of being exposed because with two races in the regular season, you can hide a little bit. I don't think there's going to be any more hiding. Uh, we are going to get to a point, uh, even if, you know, say the 2022 schedule, we add more. Um, but if, if we're not at that point yet, we're getting very close to where if you aren't capable on road courses, you, my friend, are a liability. And that can, uh, certainly change the prospect of long-term employment for, uh, for some of these guys that have, had rides for a long time based solely on maybe one or two things they do well on ovals. All right. Good stuff. Great discussion. Looking toward 2021, but let's look even uh, sooner, right? Because what sparked this conversation, obviously, they're heading to the Roval this weekend, both Xfinity Series and the Cup Series. Uh, Cup Series playoff cutoff, the Roval. Uh, so big deal and big consequences heading into this weekend. And David, like, you know, any normal year, we'd be talking something different, but we've had just one, one road course so far this season, and it was a track they'd never been to before, but it was a Roval. So what do you think we learned going into the Roval now that we've been to one road course the Cup Series guys have, uh, the Daytona road course? I'm interested in your answer here because, you know, going in any road course, what did we learn from Daytona? Well, we learned that Chase was good. Well, we kind of already knew Chase was good. We knew Truex was good, right, going into Daytona road course. Well, he came out pretty good. Chase won the race. Truex finished third. Uh, what else did we learn? I don't know. There were some outliers in that top 10, Chris Buescher, Kaz Grala, right? Michael McDowell. I don't see that happening again this weekend. So what were your takeaways and what can you apply toward the Charlotte road course that we know from the one road course we've been to so far? Yeah. Martin Truex, by the way, had the fastest car in that race. Uh, Chase Elliott ranked as the fastest car on road courses last year, ended up winning that race. But the new thing that we learned was that if you have a car fast enough and you can compete for both stage wins and the race win. We saw James Small pit Martin Truex from the lead in the final laps of the first stage, and <laughs> that handed the stage win to Chase Elliott. I'm laughing now, because you're mad. You're still salty about this. Yeah, a little bit. Truex had uh track position at the start of the second stage. So, you know, you can understand what James Small was trying to do. And for years we've been told, well, you can you, you can really just pick one or the other. If you're going for the outright win, you're going to have to ignore stages. Uh, Alan, I've never thought that. Uh, I, I've never really understood it. I thought if you had the car uh, and you had the driver, it makes sense to at least try to do both. And, uh, Elliot proved it was possible. And I asked him about what, what happened there this week. I asked whether he thought his Daytona game plan would be something that could be replicated this weekend. And he said he thought road course strategy was a thing that has to be enacted on the fly, which that is interesting to me. I, I think it's a little damning of JGR's chances uh, on any road course, but uh, specifically the Roval, because James Small did not deviate from the planned stop in Daytona. Uh, he should have. The 19 team had only one win at that point. They still only have the one win. And uh, look, a stage win and a playoff point, that's valuable. And they gave that up. We've discussed how JGR at Darlington didn't call an audible when Kevin Harvick short pitted. That could have been uh, a kill shot, for lack of a better word, on, on, on Harvick. Pit now, block him in. They didn't take that shot. That decision came back to bite them. JGR doesn't do improv, Alan. So per, perhaps they should this weekend, especially that 19 team, uh, a couple of other teams, Kyle Busch maybe. I'll talk about him, I'm sure, in a few. Uh, but a stage win, as small as it seems, could be big. That could be the difference maker in qualifying for Phoenix 
and missing out completely. So we'll see if Chase Elliott is right. We'll see if those words ring true. And I think that is definitely something to watch this weekend. Wow. Consequences aplenty, perhaps. We'll see. Uh, David, this was an interesting question you posed, and I, I'm just interested in where you're going with it. There is not a choose cone on the Roval, any of the road courses. We didn't obviously have one last week at Talladega, the drafting tracks, but nor do the road courses have a choose cone. So the Roval does not. Should there be, and David, before you answer, I just, I was interested in, there, there hasn't been too much data, but I'm sure you're going to hit us with it maybe, in terms of uh, the restart lanes and which one is the best. I asked a current cup driver, uh, just texted him and it just said, which lane is better? Because if you, if you know the layout of the Roval, there's two left-hand turns before it goes into a kind of a big sweeping right-hand turn. And this, this driver answered, you know, good question. I think the outside is better because you can hold the guy down on the bottom in the top two rows, at least. That's what this person was thinking. So David, is there a big advantage to one of the rows or not? And should there be a, a choose rule at the Roval? What were your thoughts on this? Okay. I think the answer is yes. The two grooves have a disparity of around 24 percentage points. The inside line retains position more often. It does so 76% of the time compared to the outsides 52% of the time. Now, that is a slimmer margin than most of the tracks that we have discussed in this segment this year. However, there was certainly a dynamic in last year's race that I think folks should consider and one that I think should tip this in the favor of the choose rule, the significant positional losses all occurred from cars in the outside line. Hmm. 42 positions lost all in compared to a six position gain from those uh, in the inside line. And this is across the first seven rows. We saw a similar dynamic in 2018. Ultimately, and, and here's where I agree with the driver that you spoke to, if you are a heady restarter, you can make that outside line work. Uh, at the very least, you can retain that spot. However, if you are a subpar restarter, that line, that, that is going to be a struggle, whereas, uh, you're, you're probably going to hide a little bit in the inside line. You cannot in the outside line. That to me is enough of a difference to necessitate having the choose rule on this particular road course. All right. All right. It's fair enough. Um, David, as I mentioned, this is the playoff race, the playoff cutoff for uh, the cup series anyway. So looking at the standings, who among the drivers close to the cutoff do we like to advance? Who is in trouble? David, when I look at the standings, I see an enormous gap. There is a gap between, remember, they're going from 12 to 8, right? So for the difference between 8th and ninth right now is 21 points. That's significant. It's not like it's that very close where, you know, a few passes here or um, you, I just feel like you can't control your own destiny when you are 21 points down. You have to rely on someone else having some trouble. And we're talking about a guy like Kyle Busch, who's 21 down. I, I fully believe in Kyle Busch's uh, skills and, and to get something done and pull a win out of his rear end if he had to. But, David, 21 points is a lot. And of the four who are currently out, maybe Clint Boyer has the best chance to get the outright win. And I think you're going to have to do that if you're going to leapfrog your way in from being outside right now. Uh, 21 points to me again, David. It seems like too much to overcome just on sheer point gaining driving ability alone okay so you like boyer you, of, do you, of the four who are out i think he has the, the best shot of winning the race outright and launching himself into the playoff is what i meant okay so i was looking um i was just looking at the cutoff area and you're right about the the near 20 point gap uh, I wrote that I like Alex Bowman for this weekend. I know that he is uh, 20 points and some change from safety. He does not need to win. He just needs to maintain. And looking at his uh, recent results on road courses, he's finished 14th or better in his last seven road course starts. And I would say that that is enough to maintain. 
Um, but here, here's where things become problematic for uh, those 20 points from safety. That, I mean, you are, you are in rough shape to be jumped if one of these bottom four wins. Like, I'm not, like, I might be more bullish on Alex Bowman than I am on Joey Logano at the, at the Roval, just based on what we've seen from them lately. But Kyle Bush can absolutely mm-hmm. win this race. He had the third fastest car in the Daytona road course race. That race did not end well uh, at all, and uh, his previous starts at the Roval haven't ended well. He finished 32nd and 37th in both career starts on the Roval. He has been vocal about not liking this track. He thinks it's a a clown show or or something. I don't know. He might not have said that part, but he is providing his own hot take theater, Alan. It isn't – uh, isn't anyone in the media? There isn't a talking head. It's not Stephen A. Smith saying that he's definitely going to be eliminated. It's Kyle it's Bush himself. <laughs> saying this about Kyle Bush. I hate when I'm right. That's what he said. He made the prediction and then said, I hate when I'm right. <laughs> said it before this round even started that he would be eliminated. And that is, that is on the cusp of becoming truth. And Alan, that is a bit strange to me because I look at his numbers. His passing numbers are in his favor. Restart numbers in his favor. His team ranks seventh in central speed. They are winless, and he's critical about it. I understand the frustration, and I understand that maybe you're not satisfied that you don't have the best car out there, but you rank seventh in central speed. The car that ranks eighth belongs to Brad Keselowski, and he's won four times this year. So while the 18 team does not have all the bells and whistles they did last year, it's not all going right. It shouldn't also completely remove them from contention for anything. It's possible to do a lot with that brand of speed. And he enters, and it's only been one race, but he enters this one road course race with a car that we have seen be very fast on the one other road course. So I refuse to believe that the 18 team is so bad that winning is impossible, but that is the the rhetoric we are getting from Kyle Busch. Yeah. And what you brought up about Joey Logano, where that really comes in and maybe not his uh supreme status at road course races, David, is the race within the race. If there is a winner like Kyle Busch or Clint Boyer, and the race comes down a straight up, you know, horse race between Joey Logano and Alex Bowman, I like Alex Bowman at the Roval, right? They're only Logano and Bowman are only separated by one point. If someone from the outside comes in and wins, everyone moves down a notch. And if it's a straight up race between Bowman and Logano at the Roval, I'm picking Bowman. He's actually, uh, we're going to get to it right now. So I'll just tell you, David, he was my contrarian contender pick this weekend, uh, is Alex Bowman. And so that, that does put some pressure on Logano, not only to focus on where the 88 is, but hope and pray that the 18 or 14 or who knows what Austin Dillon and Eric Almirola could be capable of. But if we're, if we're talking favorites here, I, I would think the 18 and the 14 are, are or have better chances of outright winning the race, I would be uh, somewhat concerned if I'm Joey Logano. It's crazy. Alex Bowen finished second in this race last year, despite this race just breaking loony for him. Uh, remember the, the Bubba battle that mm-hmm. he had in the middle of the race and then water thrown on him after the race. And cause he was uh, sick. I mean, he was, he was, yeah, he was hot. Remember? I mean, it was just, it was terrible. The condition he was in after that race. That's why he was sitting down on the ground and he still finished second in a backup car. Yeah. If you remember correctly. Oh he yeah. Crashed he crashed practice. late in practice. Was that the time it was really late in practice? Yeah. I think that was it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So it, and it speaks to again, Hendrick Motorsports strength on road courses and maybe this racetrack in particular, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm sticking with a contrarian pick, Alan. Uh, young William Byron. Ooh, his, will he be? His driving coach is Max Pappas. And Max Pappas, a former sports car driver, was integral in the design of the Roval itself. And I'd say that has aided Byron somewhat. He won the pole for last year's race on the Roval. He finished sixth. Uh, he, 
Won't have clean air, at least initially, in this one. So he'll have to create some track position. Chad Knauss, five races to go in his career as a crew chief, uh, has been a substantial source of track position on green flag pit cycles all season. I think we'll see a green flag pit cycle. I think Byron could leave Charlotte with a good finish. Interesting. And again, some people will point out Alex Bowman has finished fourth and second at the Roval, but I don't think anyone coming into this weekend is picking him as the outright winner. Therefore, that makes him a contrarian pick for me, David. So I just wanted to clarify and put that detail on there. I'm sure our listeners will forgive you for that. And uh, when he finishes fifth, which would be his worst finish in three seasons, <laughs> oh, yeah, you're still going to brag about it. Sure. Why not? Why not? <laughs> we got the platform. Why not? Oh, good episode. Good stuff. Love the road courses. Love we're talking more about them. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff really helps in spreading the word. Tell your friends, tell other race fans. We do notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posrecpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We always get great questions from you all. Uh, David, you're always working hard. There's a great article up there now. I want you to tell us about it because you're, uh, you're always working on something good. And uh, what is it? Yeah, uh, this week I looked into Denny Hamlin's age 39 season. Ding. I hit all the highlights uh, thus far and uncovered some areas in which he has improved over last season's effort, which also wasn't too shabby. Uh, also uh, spoke to uh, to his being a beneficiary of some of NASCAR's rule changes this season. Uh, just a lot of interesting things have happened to this 11 team. Uh, that article free for everyone to read on motorsportsanalytics.com. Make sure you get on there and read that. David, uh, I first weekend off in a long time. Trucks have been just going, going, going every weekend. So it's it's been fun, but no truck racing this weekend at the Roval. So I will be uh, just watching on television, which will be fun. But make sure you check out my Twitter account if you're listening to this on Thursday. Thank you, first of all. You're a subscriber. But it also means that tonight on Race Hub, on Thursday's Race Hub, Kurt Busch joins the A-list and a lot of A-list moments just recently to talk to him about. And uh, he's had a hell of a career. So I'm glad uh, we put him on the A-list this week. That'll be fun. And uh, just make sure you watch racing. Watch Race Hub every night, uh, Monday through Thursday on FS1, 6 p.m. Eastern. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Another great episode of Positive Aggression, episode 82. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Thank you all for listening. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.